Hi, everybody. Good evening. My name is Sahar Amer, and I am chair of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures here at the University of Sydney. It is a pleasure to welcome you all to the Sydney Ideas Lecture tonight by Professor Akram Khater, entitled Beyond the Clash of Civilizations, Arab Diasporas, and Transnational Identities. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of country. Professor Akram Khater's Sydney Ideas Lecture constitutes also the keynote address of the Conference on Arab Diasporas, Citizenship, Migration, and Transnational Identities that I co-organized with Dr. Jumana Baye from Macquarie University. This conference, which took place here today, is sponsored by the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures, and it has received the generous support of the Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences and School of Languages and Cultures. This conference aligns with the University of Sydney's strategy for inclusion and diversity, and brought together scholars of Arab studies from Sydney and Macquarie universities, as well as academics from Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, Lebanon, and the USA. Um, we were very pleased to have a series of terrific lectures um, earlier today, which brought together scholars from diverse disciplines, historians, literary scholars, sociologists, political scientists, creative writers, performance artists, scholars of gender studies, activists, as well as industry partners in order to discuss and analyze some of the main challenges pertaining to Arab communities living outside of the Arab world. You should also know that tomorrow at 6 p.m. there will be a screening of the documentary film that Professor Khater has directed entitled Cedars in the Pines, the Lebanese of North Carolina. The screening will take place at the New South Wales Parliament House Theatre and is organized by the Australian Lebanese Historical Society. If you would like to go, you should um, go there by 5.45 or 6 p.m. Tickets will be available at the door for the cost of $20. I would like to welcome you tonight on behalf of Sydney Ideas, on behalf of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures, and on behalf of the School of Languages and Cultures. And I now would like to, um, before finishing, I'd like to announce another um, Sydney Ideas lectures in which you might be interested, which will be taking place on the 12th of May, entitled, What is New in the New Turkey of the AKP? and it is, will be given by Omut Ozak from Okan University. And this lecture is uh, sponsored by the Religion, State, and Society Network. I now would like to turn the microphone to Dr. Jumana Baye, early career fellow at Macquarie University and honorary associate of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures at the University of Sydney, who will introduce Professor Khater and chair the panel. Thank you. Thank you. 
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to what promises to be both an informative and entertaining evening. It is my pleasure and privilege tonight to introduce Akram Khatir. Akram is a professor of history at North Carolina State University. He holds the Kharala Chair of Diaspora Studies and is the director of the Moise Kharala Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies. He earned his first degree in electrical engineering from California Polytech State University and then an MA and a PhD in history, the latter from the University of California at Berkeley. A prolific writer, Professor Khatir has contributed a great deal to the broad field of historical studies, but especially to Middle East history. By publishing a significant number of articles and reviews, as well as delivering conference presentations throughout the US and internationally. He is the author of several books, including Inventing Home, Emigration, Gender and the Making of a Lebanese Middle Class, and Embracing the Divine, Passion and Politics in the Christian Middle East. He has also been the recipient of numerous teaching awards, grants, and won fellowships from the National Humanities Center and the Fulbright Foundation, to name only a few. Currently, he is the editor of the International Journal of Middle East Studies, one of the most important journals in our field, and is the immediate past president of the Arab American Studies Association. Alongside all of these substantial achievements, Professor Khatir has been a key figure in the establishment of the study of Middle East migration, a subfield of Middle East studies. Challenging the practice that studies of the Middle East are only concerned with what goes on in the region, Professor Khatir's work shows the degree to which migration or the, or the immigration of people and the circulation of ideas and goods have shaped the Middle East considerably, as well as the places that migrants have settled. For me, this was most clearly conveyed when I first read his book, Inventing Home, as a PhD student almost a decade ago, not quite a decade ago. In this book, Professor Khatir explains the transnational significance of uh, silk production in Lebanon, something I had heard about extensively from my father because he had worked with his father in silkworm farming, albeit in a later period than the one described in Inventing Home. But anyway, I had also always assumed that this industry was small and local and rather inconsequential to Lebanon's overall economy. But as I learned, it had much wider effects. Not only did it connect the country's mountain economy to, the, to France, because they were the, ones that, the merchants that were purchasing the silk, um, but the wealth that it generated amongst the peasant classes elevated their consumerist and life expectations. When this industry went into decline, the response from a significant portion of the peasant class was to emigrate to the Americas, with many returning to establish what became Lebanon's middle class. I took this section of the book to my father to show him that I understood finally, after all these years, what he was really part of, that he was no longer just this man who had migrated from Lebanon, but was this truly cosmopolitan figure well before he had left that tiny village in Lebanon that he speaks about all the time. Needless to say, my dad was not as excited as I was, nor did he feel that he needed to read this book because, after all, Yajumana, I know this all already. But I did catch him reading the book anyway, and when I asked him why, he said, I need to check that this professor got his facts straight. <laughs> In more recent times, uh, Professor Khatir has been the founder and one of the editors of the uh, journal Mahjad al-Mashriq, a journal of Middle East migration studies. The editorial to the inaugural issue of this journal explains why Middle East studies needs to take seriously its diasporas and migrant history 
rather than simply see these migrations as the intellectual domain of other disciplines and relegate them as outside the interests of Middle East research. Nothing short of an eloquently worded manifesto for Middle East migration studies, this editorial maps clearly what is at stake in this subfield. Quoting from it directly, the editorial states, the Middle East under the angle of migration is less a clear territorial package than a set of networks holding together and held together by people and things, places and practices. It can be found in Dakar and New York City, Buenos Aires and Mumbai, Paris and Sao Paulo, Sydney and Singapore, as well as in Cairo, Beirut and Ramallah. It is there in migrants' newspapers, their television and computer screens, kitchens and restaurants, and also places of worship. These palimpsests of diaspora, bearing the traces of displacement, remind us in a myriad of ways of the presence of the Middle East in the world and the world in the Middle East. Professor Khotar's talk tonight will address the history of Arab migration to the US to overturn what is a strangely enduring claim of the immutability of East and West, captured in that Huntington phrase, the clash of civilizations. In light of the current refugee crisis that has gripped both the Middle East and the West, it is urgent and a rather timely moment to review this East-West relationship and to question the assumptions that underlie this supposed dichotomy. Please join me in warmly welcoming Professor Fatir. Good evening. Uh, it is absolutely a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Uh, to be, this is my first time in Australia and in Sydney, and I have to say I love it, and I can see why Sahar and Martin decided that this is a place to be. Uh, the hospitality is amazing, and uh, today was truly wonderful to be surrounded by such amazing minds and scholars. It was very humbling, actually, to hear of all the great work. Uh, it is, distance does make a difference, and I have to say it's like discovering a whole new world. So for me, this is uh, quite exciting. So tonight, I've actually, my voice is loud as it is. I don't want to blast everybody's ears. Can you all hear me OK? All right. So uh, I'm changing a little bit the topic, if you will, uh, that Jumana described. Not terribly uh, much, but uh, so I'm sorry, Jumana. I, mean, <laughs> I should have probably told you before you did this. Uh, so, but, but it is, in essence, trying to understand something which is that was came up again and again today during uh, the conference, which is the continuing marginalization of Arabs in the Mahjar, in the land of immigration, uh, whether it's Australia or the United States. This constant insistence of them as a community not belonging. Uh, I don't mean to imply that we are the only ethnic community that is seen as marginal. Uh, all one has to do is listen to Donald Trump in the United States to know that Hispanics are also part of that. Uh, he hasn't quite gotten to Asian Americans, but I'm sure at some point he will. Uh, I don't think he will leave anybody unscathed. However, uh, there is something very different uh, in terms of the vitriol that is leveled against Arab Americans. Uh, for a small community, Right? I mean, uh, in terms of numbers, the community is quite small. Uh, whether we're looking at the beginning of the 20th century, which is somewhere around 100, 120,000 versus the millions of the Italians and the Irish and the Jews who immigrated. Of course, they received their uh, fair share, if you will, of racism. But that seems they have been incorporated more or less into the mainstream. And even today, the numbers are very vague in the United States, but somewhere around 3.3 million Americans are of Arab descent, either of recent uh, you know, trans, uh, they have moved there recently, or they descend from Arab heritage. As compared to the 55 million 
uh, Hispanic Americans and about 19.4 million Asian Americans. Uh, and yet, if you look at the amount of uh, attacks against Arabs, it's really quite phenomenal. It transcends any other community. Now, the argument has always been that the reason this is is because of terrorism. That, in other words, terrorism explains, 9-11 really for short, explains this animosity towards Arabs and, of course, Islam as well. And usually the two are conflated. Never mind that that's not the same, but that's another story we'll get to later. Uh, so the notion is that this is something that happened just because, as a reaction, if you will, to the violence that was visited upon the United States on that fateful day of 9-11. But the reality is that is not the case. In the late 1920s, a debate played out across the pages of the Syrian world. This is an Arab-American magazine that was published by a person called Salubum Karzil. Now, uh, just so, terminology very quickly for those of you who may not be familiar. I'm going to be using things such as Lebanese, Syrian, and Arab interchangeably. Uh, most of the people who arrived early in the United States, as well as Australia, by the way, were calling themselves, or were they called really, Syrians. Uh, not as a nationalism. They didn't belong as citizens to something called Syria. It didn't exist quite yet. But rather as greater Syria, this geographic land that includes Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. The great majority of those who arrived in the United States, at least according to the statistics that we have been compiling, came from what we know today as modern Lebanon. Uh, so, but they, for the long time, until the mid-1930s and early 1940s, they were known as Syrians. Uh, they didn't use the term Arab. There was a whole debate about whether they would call themselves Arab or not, but again, that's another story. Anyhow, in the 1920s, this debate played out across the pages on whether Syrians would ever be accepted in the United States. The debate began with a 1927 letter written by Dr. My, uh, Michael Schdeed, a self-described quote-unquote Syrian socialist, one of three probably, living and practicing medicine in Elk City. And I think I can go. For those, of, for those of you who don't know where Elk City is, I thought I'd give you a real helpful thing. <laughs> right? It's uh, in the sort of really western part of Oklahoma, right close to Texas. Not a very hospitable environment, but he's really quite an amazing character, actually. Uh, so he, was, he, he actually studied medicine in Elk City. I mean, sorry, he practiced medicine in Elk City, Oklahoma. Titled Syria for the Syrians, the essay argued that Syrians will always be rejected in America because of racial prejudice. Moreover, he contended, this racism permeated all classes, and most notably, the middle classes, as evidenced by the mushrooming of the Ku Klux Klan among the members of the social state. For those of you who are not familiar, although I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm sure most of you are, the KKK, as it was popularly known, was, and still is, a terrorist, racist, and nativist organization that flourished in the United States in its second manifestation. It had three different manifestations, beginning first 1860, and then it died off. But the second manifestation, which Dr. Steed was talking about, was in the 1920s. And they basically were anti-Catholic, primarily, and anti-Jewish. But of course, they're equal opportunity races, so, you know, uh, <coughs> the, 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 the Syrians were part of that thing. Uh, I have, as you'll see from the film, uh, one of the early immigrants, I was interviewing a descendant of early immigrants, he said, there are three things you didn't want to be in the South in the Jim Crow South, that is before civil rights era. You didn't want to be black, you didn't want to be foreigner, and you didn't want to be Catholic. 
and we were two out of three. <laughs> so it kind of sucked. The letter and Shadid's suggestion that the only solution is for Syrians to go back to Syria, where they can purportedly, at least, enjoy full respect, questionable, but that's what he thought, elicited a great many responses, most of which were negative in, to varying degrees. In the same issue where Shadid's essay was published, and that was February 1927, the editor of the Syrian world, Salum Karzil, uh, took exception to his generalizations, and even more to his solution. After briefly expressing sympathy for the racism Dr. Shadid faced, Salum Karzil dismissed it as an unfortunate accident of place and circumstance, rather than a widespread phenomenon. He noted that such displays are only made by, quote, a class that is provincial, narrow, short-sighted, and destructive of the true American spirit. And by the way, this is exactly what's being said about Trump supporters today. On the other hand, educated Americans truly appreciate the benefit that immigrants bring to America. Placing Syrians squarely within this respectable class, he noted that since they are, quote-unquote, mainly of the mercantile industrial class, that is, the Syrians, they can simply move to a more hospitable location to escape ostracism and racism. In later letters that were published between 1927 and 1928, other authors equally dismissed Dr. Schdietz's pessimism, as they called it, about America, and even chided him for giving up in the face of few discriminatory incidents. Co collectively, they all argued that hard work, a rise in socioeconomic status, and the passage of time will resolve this type of racism. Obviously, they were wrong. But despite their protestations, to the contrary, Dr. Steed's argument was unfortunately vindicated very shortly in 1929 by the pronouncement of U.S. Senator, United States Senator of Pennsylvania, Senator uh, David Reed. He was one of the sponsors of the 1924 immigration bill that basically was meant to prohibit, the, uh, to simply keep anybody who was not a Northern European out of the United States. Uh, but the debate was taking place. There was another amendment to the bill in 1929, and this was when the debate was uh, taking place. And on the Senate floor of the United States Senate, uh, Senator Reid proclaimed, quote, we got the trash of the Mediterranean. All that Levantine stock that churns around through there and does not know what its own ancestry is, it came here in large numbers from Syria. Clearly not a very laudatory statement. And from the, you know, today I basically heard the same kind of statements being made in Australia for during the white Australia period. Uh, so it's not really that uncommon. And by the way, what is really interesting is that the same thing was happening in South Africa. The three countries where race and Hassan, uh, Hassan Haj, who's a colleague of mine, uh, has spoken about this kind of uh, racial, uh, you know, basically landscape that extends from South Africa to the United States to uh, Australia, and in many ways, those Arabs who were here early on were fighting against that uh, racism by almost the same argument. Uh, the legal cases that took place in the United States, in South Africa, and in Australia all had the same argument. Uh, you know, you have to accept this because we're Christian and we're civilized, but we'll get to that in a bit. So this racist pronouncement, which elicited outrage response from the early Arab-American community in the United States, was hardly the first rejection of an Arab presence in America. It, and sadly, it was not the last, as I'm sure you would know. Uh, sorry, this was Salum Karzin. Ah, really late here. Okay. And I thought I had a. I had a. I thought I had a slide. That, but that's yeah. There we go. So it was not the last by any means. Uh, Orientalism, this notion, and we'll come back to this idea, but this notion of the East, 
but most people sort of take it to mean the Middle East, uh, has been current within the um, United States from the 18th century forward. And the images have always been very negative, right? Whether it is captivity uh, narratives, that is, those who are the pirates of Barbary off the coast of North Africa would come back and report about what happened to them, and this is one of the scenes, or whether it is uh, 1950s, uh, really racy, obviously, uh, soft porn material in which you have a thinly veiled woman, and they're always carrying curved knives, right? It's really interesting. There's always that curved knife, or whether we're talking about, uh, you know, 20th century. For those of you interested, by the way, just go to YouTube and search for Planet of the Arabs. You can already tell this is a play on Planet of the Apes. Uh, and it's a collage of images that Hollywood produced about Arab, uh, Arabs in general, dating all the way back to the silent era. And in essence, there's nothing positive about it. The stereotypes have always been there, the point here. And the stereotypes are always been the antithesis of who America is. Violent, irrational, uh, so on and so forth. And one of, one of my favorite things, uh, I, I watched this actually in Lebanon. It was a very bizarre experience. It's called Delta Force. It was a horrible film uh, made by Chuck Norris. I don't know if you've ever seen Chuck Norris. He's a brilliant American actor who kicks his way through all sorts of things. So we were sitting in Beirut in a movie theater watching a film called Delta Force made by two Israeli cousins, by the way. They made a series of these B-rated films. And the film showed basically a real event but of course, from the point of view of two Israeli directors and Chuck Norris, the event was the hijacking of TWA, a flight that gets hijacked, lands in Beirut airport. There's uh, a couple of people I think that were killed during it, but obviously the current speaker of the parliament, Nabih Barri, negotiates it and they leave. In the film, that doesn't happen that way. Chuck Norris does what he usually does. But the scene is amazing, and it's, an, it's really a fantastic scene. The plane lands, and the first thing that's striking is this. The window is open on the cockpit. Right? I don't know how many of you have flown, but usually cockpits, uh, but it's very good for the camera. And there's a pilot, and there's a co-pilot, and behind them is a civilian, which is another odd thing. But, and then the, the camera cuts to a scene of people with literally World War I issued guns, and they were going literally, rah, 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 rah. Right? So Arabic, a language of civilization, a language of 1,600 years in which we have poetry, we have philosophy, we have medicine, we have science is reduced to dogs, right? That's what we are, we are reduced to dogs. And then it cuts back to the pilot who says, who are they? And it cuts back to them. And of course they have to have a kafiyah because that's the only way you identify them from Hispanics, <laughs> right? And so it cuts back, they're doing the same barking sounds and then it cuts back to the civilian who says, they're Arabs, <laughs> right? <laughs> And, and the co-pilot, of course, asks the obvious question, how do you know? And it cuts back to them, the barking and the guns, right? I mean, immediately it gives you the trope, and then it cuts back to the civilian who says, I just know. <laughs> That's all you need to know, right? So these images, and sorry, I'm going to swing back here, but because... Uh, <clears throat> so these images... Uh, in the 1970s, in the wake of the 1967 war and subsequent 1973 war, uh, racist portrayals of Arabs abounded in popular culture and po political pronouncement. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere in the United States without seeing images, of course, of the big hooked nose and the, the robes and the oil fields. It was really quite something. And in the 21st century, questions are still being asked publicly as to whether Arabs can, quote unquote, belong to the United States. The events of 9-11 and subsequent wars replayed and magnified the trope of the Arab 
as symbolic of and synonymous with terrorism. In other words, the events of the last two decades, beginning with the Gulf War I, gave currency to latent 19th century Orientalist representations and more recent Hollywood image of the Arab as the other. Someone who is physically and morally alien to America, harboring and villainously acting upon beliefs contrary to American core values. Thus, the question posed by Dr. Shadid in 1927 and many before and after him remains unanswered today. And after 140 years of immigration, Arab Americans continue to be marginalized, not only in public discourse though, but they, are also, they also remain outside the mainstream of scholarly discourse of the United States, right? So, I mean, just very briefly, uh, if you look at most study, I mean, the, the, the fields that we, of American studies, Arabs do not appear anywhere. They have no place in it. Uh, if you're looking at textbooks at the history level, uh, at the sorry high school level, if you're looking at a of American history at the university level, they just don't make any appearance at all. They are not part of the fabric of the society of the economy, right? So when people talk about you know uh, World War One, World War Two, no mention at all of the thousands who actually fought during these wars. Whether one you know thinks that's a great idea or not is a different point. So they're completely absent. They do not exist. They only emerge when there is somebody bombing something. That is their role in that sense. Again, other groups have you know, endured these stereotypes, but to a certain extent, there's not a single positive thing, even in a stereotypical fashion, as racists usually sometimes allow for, there's not even anything positive that you would ever find about Arabs in general. So <clears throat> this marginalization persists despite the fact that across this long span of time, Arab American public intellectuals and scholars have written about and wrestled with this gap, seeking to somehow overcome and, quote, naturalize the presence of Arabs in America. Tonight, I would like to ask why we see this continued marginalization and to suggest ways beyond what I regard as the ghettoization of Middle East migration studies. Now, early on, most people sort of uh, used what was called the Chicago, Chicago School. This is a group of sociologists that were studying immigration in the United States, and they came up with this idea of the melting pot. It didn't last too long. I mean, you have all sorts of notion, the salad bowl, whatever you want to call it, but originally it was the melting pot. And these sociologists were primarily from Chicago, the University of Chicago, and they argued that the city becomes the place where immigrants come in and they are, in essence, melted to become Americans. This is a place where they are transformed from whatever they were before. And in the process, of they, in essence, abandon anything that was there before and they become fully American. I mean, a very optimistic and ridiculously not true notion of how people immigrated. Uh, but that is one of the main things. And in many ways, many of the early Arab American intellectuals and scholars, to a certain extent, tried to adhere to this idea that they can fit in, if you will. So using these ideas, again, the American cities as melting pots, some early Arab American intellectuals and scholars have argued that Arabs can indeed be Americans and can easily accept American values. In fact, and this is where Phoenicians comes up, they immediately argued uh, that, no, 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 wait, we are descendants of Phoenicians. For those of you who don't know who the Phoenicians are, these are the folks who lived along the coast of the Mediterranean some two or 3,000 years ago, and they have trade, you know, they were the traders that plied the waters of the Mediterranean, and as uh, somebody was mentioning to me, they really also did a lot with purple, the royal color, which is why I was, I'm wearing this today, right? Uh, 
So the notion is that the DNA of those immigrants includes this Phoenician aspect of liberty and mercantilism and entrepreneurialism. And isn't that what America is all about? And in essence, they said, we are uniquely qualified amongst all the immigrants to fit into America so easily. Uh, and in some cases, by the way, they would even go further. Not only can they assimilate, but they would say, look, we were, you know, we had these ideas long before you guys existed in America. So they were even getting a little uppity on that matter. Uh, amongst one of the key figures, actually, I'm going to go back to him, is this guy, Salim, uh, Salim, uh, Salum Al-Karzi. So Salum Al-Karzi publishes this article uh, before 1927 in the New York Times. And basically, he's introducing to the readership of the New York Times the Syrians. He wants to explain to them why they matter. And it's a really fascinating essay because it's actually, first of all, the New York Times gave him two pages, the full front page and then the second page, which is a lot for the New York Times, right? Uh, and so he publishes this thing that is very cognizant of the fact that in terms of numbers, they are completely insignificant. I mean, you, they pale in comparison to the Italians and the Irish and the Polish and the Jews. They're nothing. So he's trying to make the argument, but wait, we do matter. And he says the following, he says, look, we, because of our Phoenician blood, are the proto-capitalists. We understand capitalism. And therefore, we will become America's imperial agents in the world. We will go to the places where the brown and the, the green and the yellow and the purple people live, and we will bring American products. Trust us. This is what we will do. right? So we will be more American than you are. We will be your agents over there, in that sense. Uh, Clearly, it didn't convince too many people, but nonetheless, he thought that it was really the case. So in essence, he presented the Arab as an agent of empire. And he thought that would allow, that would bring acceptance. And, you know, to a certain extent, like, I mean, there's a very famous picture of him. He's presenting a cedar to uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. So in that sense, he had arrived, and there were some other people that had arrived. There is no doubt, by the way, that uh, there was a great deal of success among some of these folks, and they were able to make a middle-class life. But I'll come back to the issue of class later, because in many ways this myth about the success of the Arabs in America, economic success anyway, is really very problematic, and we'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, so, in addition to uh, uh, Salum al-Karzil, Philip Hetti is probably the first it's, you know, one would argue, the first Arab-American uh, academic scholar, intellectual, that was, if you will, accepted. He was at Princeton. Uh, and he became very well known, and he wrote multiple series of books. Amongst them is this book that says the Syrians in America. And if you read this book, it's more nuanced than Salum Karzil's incredibly uh, reductionist argument. It's more sophisticated, but in the end, he makes the same argument. So despite the fact that he says, well, you know, we're not going to disappear and become naturalized, and we're going to become you know, completely Americans, we can't abandon completely who we are, still he argues that the Syrians, quote-unquote, are uniquely positioned amongst all immigrants. And here this notion of respectability comes up again and again. And by the way, this is, I mean, I was reading reports to the Syrian world from somebody in New Zealand who was emphasizing, again, respectability. This obviously wasn't just in the United States. And the respectability, you know, we, we work hard, we have good morals, we don't go to jail, which of course is absolute rubbish because I have documentary evidence that they did go to jail, right? Uh, our women are very proper, that's not true, there was prostitution among the community, but it doesn't matter, it's this notion of presenting itself as a successful, respectable 
community. And Philip Hitti, of course, is, uh, made that argument. And as late as the 1980s, Alexa Naf, who I, uh, you know, is a wonderful scholar, uh, in, the, in the late 1960s, she was at UCLA, and she got in a Volkswagen bus, and she crossed the whole United States, stopping at various places in the United States and interviewing people. This was the first real oral history that we ever collected about Arab Americans. And today, the Smithsonian, which is a major institution in the United States, houses the NAF collection of Arab American history. I mean, it's just really quite wonderful what she did. But still, if you look at the title, the title is still part of that notion that folks who come here become American. Uh, in essence, in one way or the other, assimilation is the model. That you, know, you acquire the clothes, the language, the education, the whole thing, and ultimately, you become part of America. And the way, the, it's not so much that those things are not true, but of course, the problem with assimilation is this notion that we completely abandon who we are, that there is nothing that is left of us, we become truly American. But the second bigger problem is this notion that you become American, but America doesn't become you, right? Which is incredibly ridiculous. I mean, look, just at the level of food. When I first arrived in the United States in 1978, Taco Bell, which is a horrible chain, and don't ever eat there, was arrived at the city I was in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a very Midwestern town, and people were thrilled. This was like ethnic food, right? It was fast food, crap, it's nothing. Today, if you look at the United States, the food thing, industry is huge, right? I mean, it's, but this notion of assimilation is problematic because of that, because it never sees America as a process that is constantly changing by immigrants throughout its history. Now, other early Arab American uh, intellectuals didn't go that route. Rather, they wanted to create a transcendental notion of society. Gibran is probably the quintessential of that. Gibran Khalil Gibran. By the way, he's not my favorite, but nonetheless, uh, he gets a lot of attention. And obviously, Gibran Khalil Gibran becomes very successful. And if you, I'm sure some of you have read The Prophet, and you know, it's been translated into blah, 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 and it's sold many, many million copies. It's great. But the point if you read it, The Prophet has no moorings. It exists nowhere. Right? It, it, it's sort of completely out of history, out of time, and out of place. The prophet, of course, yes, we understand that it's supposed to represent Christ and all those notions, but it doesn't really matter in that sense, right? Uh, Salma Hayek's remaking, I don't know if you guys have seen it, she made, she made the, the prophet into an animated film. It's equally kind of this amalgamation of things. There's a notion that it's the Turks who are terrible, but beyond that, you don't get any sort of concrete. So Gibran's answer to this rejection is to say, we will all transcend and go up. And if you look at his art, and if you look at his writing, it's all this transcendentalist moment, if you will. So the idea of escapism. And, you know, it's, it, it's so vague and uh, that has no connection to any particular culture that it becomes very palatable, which is why it was very much accepted, right? Aside from the fact that he also played on key orientalist images. Uh, another person, like Gibran, is Amir Rihani. Now, Amir Rihani is a little bit more of a practical sort. But one of his famous uh, statements was, and this is his attempt, and I think he approaches this a little bit more interestingly than Gibran. And he writes at one point, we are not of the East or the West. No boundaries exist in our breast. We are free, right? So in essence, he rejects this whole civilizational divide that we hear about over and over again. He rejects the notion that there's an East and a West at all, that anybody should think of that. Gibran plays on the idea of the East as a spiritual that feeds Western materialism and, you know, is, is very important and then the West and the East merge into this kind of transcendentalism. 
Uh, Rehani, to a certain extent, is different. I mean, Rehani, and by the way, I think he's much more interesting uh, in terms of his writing. And if you read the book of Khaled, and I think Joanna mentioned it uh, today, the book of Khaled is considered to be the first English uh, novel written by an Arab American or an Arab immigrant. Uh, and in the book of Khaled, what he does is he, he tries to bring together different themes. Uh, so he calls the whirling dervishes of Wall Street, right? These kind of images. Uh, and he tries to sort of merge them together into a new type of society, but still it's an it's attempt to move beyond what is there, if you will. Yet all these efforts, and I'm sort of obviously summarizing here, foundered in dislodging the Arab from her or his otherness. I would argue that this failure was due to two main factors. One is the geographically bound nature of scholarship, which continues to see Arab and Arabness as located in a particular spot on the map. And I'll come to the second point later. Middle East studies, like other area studies, which came of age in the Anglo-American Academy in the wake of the Second World War, rested on two complementary assumptions. As has often been remarked, these disciplinary amalgams construed particular populations through unchanging specificities of language, faith, social, economic, and political organization. These tropes, such as the quote-unquote Arab mind, which was a very popular book written by uh, Raphael Patai, an Israeli scholar in 1971, the Islamic city, quote-unquote, oriental despotism, and more recently the Arab street, not Arab public opinion, it has to be the street, have become all too familiar. However, these efforts at civilizational taxonomy, the idea of creating these sort of various uh, levels of civilizations, existed in a mutually constitutive relationship with an exercise in the ordering of space which divided the world into a series of clearly defined areas, just as an enumeration of the inherent particularities of its people served to define the Middle East, the study of Middle Eastern languages and cultures depended upon a fixed understanding of this region. In the eyes of the progenitors of area studies, Western modernity could, indeed had to, transcend its initial confines, coming to serve as a universal panacea as it reached out across the globe. Tradition, meanwhile, was nothing if not local, fated to remain firmly rooted in place until it finally faded away. Quite often, aided, guided, or forced to through Western inter interventions, they were usually deemed as uplifting and liberating, but in reality were destructive and self-serving. Over the past three decades, post-colonial scholarship has deconstructed these narratives of stasis. A vast body of work in history, anthropology, literary and cultural studies, and geography has unpacked the discourses of monolithic difference that underpinned area studies. Post-colonial theorists have offered, in their stead, sophisticated accounts of the constructed and historically contingent nature of categories whose meanings scholars have previously taken to be fixed and self-evident. Whether seemingly universal keywords like gender, culture, or race, or labels of alterity like the tribe or the caste, this line of thinking has been accompanied in many instances by a desire to break out of the bounds of what we might call methodological regionalism and to question the assumed isomorphism of space, place, and culture, which long blinkered scholars. So, right, I mean, and, and this post-colonial moment, in essence, uh, is happening after sort of the 1970s and forward. For migration studies, it's called the transnational turn, where we begin to see that people don't belong to a single place. So if you look at early studies, people, nationalist histories, could not really accommodate immigrants. Right? They were either leaving or they were arriving, but that's all they could do with them. And once they left, that's the end of it. 
right? If you left the shores of one place, you no longer belong to that place. When the reality of people's lives was much more complicated and certainly much more of a shuttle, they constantly moved back and forth across national boundaries, making a mockery of this idea. So the, the problem with immigrants is they just don't stand still, while nations are very much seeking to be fixed. If you look at a map, for example, maps are very critical because they are frozen, except you know Putin taking over the Ukraine, but beyond that. Generally speaking, maps are frozen. The boundaries are set, but people's lives have never been that way, ever, in this regard. So there's always a tension, a contradiction, and a lie, really, in many ways, that is very nationalist in its orientation. Post-colonial studies have attempted to sort of move beyond that, and one of the ways that they did that is through the transnational turn. Now, the, this transnational turn is now more than 20 years old. If we trace it to the foundation of the journal called Diaspora, and the influential statements of Nina Glick-Schiller, James Clifford, Arjun Apadurai, and Stuart Hall. A veritable flood of transnational and transregional histories and ethnographies have followed in their wake. To be sure, not all have drawn direct inspiration from these theoretical manifestos of these individuals I just mentioned. The parallel explosion of interest in global or world history has been equally influential. Nor has this been a consensual, cohesive project. Scholars of diaspora have consciously striven to unsettle regional definitions and demarcations, if not to overturn them. Oceanic historians, meanwhile, have viewed the seascapes they examine as microcosms, bounded entities of kind, though ones altogether more amphibious and less hermetic than the regions of old. But all have shared the commitment to tracking long-distance connections and cross-border circulations, crafting tales in motion that stand in stark contrast to the still lives of an earlier generation of area studies. Probably one of the most important of these things is the Black Atlantic. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with it, but it's this notion, I mean, it's just really brilliant work that was done that creates a connection between the uh, African diasporas across the Atlantic, rather than seeing the slaves arrive in America and that's the end of the story, so to speak. It is striking, however, that Middle East studies have witnessed no such thoroughgoing attempts to reconsider regional boundaries and to conceive of alternative, less static visions of the relation between people and territory. Since the publication of Edward Said's Orientalism, if not earlier, scholars of the region have actively participated in efforts to pull apart the webs of representation that cast various parts of the world out of historical time, depicting them as standing by stock still while, quote unquote, the West marched relentlessly on. Right? I mean, I'm sure most of you have heard this. This is nothing new in many ways. But like my students always say, I'm teaching the Palestine-Israel class. It's a very uplifting course to teach. Uh, and the students, of course, come in. Oops, I keep clicking. Uh, the students come in and say, these people have been fighting forever. Right? I mean, that's the usual thing that they imagine, is they've been fighting forever. This notion that it's outside time. That you can imagine two people just blowing each other over the head for 2,000, 3,000 years. That's the Middle East. Right? Uh, they never imagine anybody in the Middle East laughing. Right? You know, I do this uh, word association when I start my class. I say, so I say Middle East, what do you think? And of course, it's usual stuff. You know, sand, you know, the veil, uh, you know, lots of wives. The, the guys usually say that with a glint in their eyes. Uh, and, the, you know, they talk about oil, they talk about violence, religious extremism, but they never once imagine a love poem, right? They never imagine somebody laughing. They don't imagine a music concert that people actually listen to music and get up and dance, right? Because we were all like born out of our mother's womb with a grim look on our face with a bomb in one hand and a Quran in the other going, death to America, right? I mean, that is how people are born. So 
it is this notion that is, Middle East historians, Middle East scholars have tried to work against this, and I think it's been very laudable in many ways, but I would argue it has been limited. Those, these works persuasively argue that far from remaining uh, immured in irredeemable difference, the Middle East was subject to the push and pull of history. Shocking, I'm sure. Their approach, however, has largely been chronocentric in focusing upon the stakes of time. They have all too often lost sight of space and the ways in which it can be constructed and construed. Even as they acknowledged that the very term the Middle East is a relatively recent product of geopolitical concerns, few sought to discard it or to question prevailing cartographic visions. As a consequence, Middle Eastern studies have adopted a markedly state notion of space and place. Their analytical focus, on the whole, has remained resolutely trained upon a single spot on the map. Historical actors may move back and forth across the boundaries, coming into or drifting out of view, but the lens rarely pans away to track their peregrinations or to consider the latter's implications. Nowhere is this analytical stillness and the circumscribed geography that underpins it more apparent than in the continuing disregard that scholars of the Middle East have for migration and the world that migrants make. It often seems that those who left the region's confines are seen as passing out of the realm of Middle Eastern studies and coming under the purview of other scholars, more familiar with the lay of lands these men and women have moved on to. Such methodological regionalism seems untenable when one considers the regularity with which people, migrants, sojourners, travelers, pilgrims or refugees, scholars and merchants, servants and slaves, soldiers and missionaries, cultivators and craftsmen, ideas, and things traverse the conventional geographic bounds of the Middle East. And I'm not talking about 19th century and 20th century. The Middle East at any moment is made up of migration. You cannot understand the Middle East, I would argue, without understanding movement. It's impossible in terms of who the people who live there, in terms of how the place was shaped in any, in any moment. It's all about movement. And here I have to pull up the Phoenicians again. I mean, I have to use them. And, I mean, but really it's not just about the Phoenicians or about all the population in that region was on the move at one point or another. <clears throat> to be sure, there has been an upsurge of interest in diaspora in recent years, as scholars have begun to trace the manifold trajectories of Middle Eastern migrants and the frequently ambivalent positions they take up, up uh, sorry, they took up in the societies they come to inhabit. However, much of this recent scholarship is the work of historians, social scientists, and literary scholars trained in American, Latin American, African, or Australian studies. Other scholars stand awkwardly at the intersections of different regional specializations, keeping one foot in Middle Eastern studies while attempting to breach its territorial bounds. Indeed, the task of tracking moving targets is not easy. And you know, you can imagine it's very hard as a scholar to do that. Because if you really are going to follow many immigrants, you will have to learn Arabic, or Turkish, or you know, Farsi, or, uh, and you also have to learn Spanish, because a lot of them go there, and then you have to learn English, and then you know, uh, possibly you will learn you know, Creole, and a whole lot of languages. The problem is that very, it's very, really exhausting to follow these immigrants. They never sit still. So in essence, it is demanding. The archives are all over the place. Theoretically, you have to sort of patch things together. But in essence, it's still, if we are to be honest about telling the stories or the history, of any particular place, we have to do this very difficult task. So, uh, not only were generations of specialists trained to drill deep into Middle East specificities, they were also conditioned to consider the region's entanglements with the world beyond through the grand rubric of imperialism, 
international relations, geopolitical alliances, and political economy. Rather than surrendering migrants to others, reducing them to footnotes in seemingly grander narratives, or simply giving up on them as lost in the Middle East, much remains to be done to integrate such out-of-place subjects in the field. However, the oversight of migration in Middle East studies is dwarfed by the neglect that historians of migration have shown for the region and its mobile subjects. This can be seen in Dirk Herders, and he's one of the most well-known uh, sort of mega historians of migration. Magisterial, though by no means unproblematic, account of movement in world history. It is inevitable that scholars of this or that part of the world will quibble with emissions and generalizations in a work of such ambition and encyclopedic scale, and it is really amazing. Nevertheless, I would argue that the almost complete omission of the Middle East from Herder's account of the great age of migration, the 19th century, is significant. Not only does Herder ignore the movements of Palestinian and Syrian townspeople, Anatolian and Lebanese cultivators, but he also explicitly characterizes the region as distinct from the rest of the world. We're the one place that is so different in terms of how we move, right? Only Balkan Ottoman subjects, he believes, participated in the new migration towards the Americas, that great surge of a Mediterranean people into the Atlantic from the 1880s to the outbreak of the First World War. East of that line, he, quote, I'm quoting him here, east of that line, separate migration systems began, and only occasionally with particularly hard-pressed groups, for example, the Armenians, enter the westward migration routes. The picture Herder paints of the Middle East is one of almost unremitting turmoil and tragedy of refugees and displaced peoples, Armenians and Greeks, Balkan Muslims, and European Jews, whose successive waves were both a sign of the disintegration of older norms of conviviality and comedy and portents of new ethnic conflicts. In other words, the only time the Middle Easterners move is if somebody is hitting them, and you know, to put it very simply. If there's an explosion of a conflict, then you move. And by the way, uh, one mustn't be too hard on him because many of the early immigrants, as Anne was alluding to uh, earlier, used that story as well, the Turkish persecution story. Uh, and as Anne sort of very well put it, they even use it like when it was 1938 when you know, the Ottoman Empire was long gone, but it doesn't matter. I don't seek to diminish the importance of these population displacements. On the contrary, they form a significant part of the region's history. But to focus exclusively upon them at the expense of other modes and moments of movement can lead us to construe the migrations of the Middle East inhabitants as little more than trails of suffering and relegate the region to a zone of perennial discord and disarray outside the bounds of a broader history of global processes. That the men and women who traveled away from that region were firmly part of such a broader history can be glimpsed in the aged, torn reams of ships' registers and naturalization records scattered in archives through the diaspora, which record the names of thousands of migrants from Syria, along those of others from Italy, Armenia, Greece, Austria, Hungary, and elsewhere. So my point here is that movement and displacement are not accidental aspects of the past and present in the Middle East. They are the center of its history. Moving people are, uh, are everywhere to be found in the region's history. The migrants from Mount Lebanon, Homs, Hama, Halab, Aleppo, who since the 18th century forged the far-flung networks of trade, kin, friendship, and intellectual in interchange between Egypt and later the Americas, Africa, and Australasia. The Hadrami Sayyids, and Omani merchants who dispersed through the Indian Ocean and into Southeast Asia. The Egyptian oil workers of the 1980s, Iraq. The Palestinian refugees of Yarmouk and Ain al-Halwi the Ashkenazi or Mizrahi inhabitants of Tel Aviv or West Jerusalem, the Circassian citizens of Jordan, the Nepalese and Sri Lankan domestic workers 
of bourgeois Beirut homes or the Filipino technicians, Syrian hairdressers and Pakistani and Bangladeshi construction workers and taxi drivers of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Such movements, of course, do not stand in opposition to fixity. On the contrary, they are bound together in a dialectic that has helped to make the Middle East, as we now understand it, even as it disrupts notion of the region as a bounded space. Reimagining the Middle East in such a manner as a network of ideas, commodities, and people undermines nationalist and colonialist narratives, and I'm using colonialist to refer to still today, by the way. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my track here. Uh, that share a vision of the world as an aggregate of discrete bundles of land and people, hermetic units sealed off from one another and defined by their particularities. It forces us to start thinking about America, quote unquote, as a solid entity to which, Im uh, not as a solid entity to which immigrants came, but a place that can only be understood by the movement and contribution of immigrants, including those who are Arab. Assimilation, naturalization, and Americanization become meaningless terms, or at least ones that have very limited analytical use. However, the second part of this puzzle of why we continue to see the marginalization is not just because of the failure of Middle East studies and migration studies in general, to take seriously these stories that I've alluded to. In addition, I would argue that the inherent constraint of ethnicity, and so, we start out with two schools, the Chicago School, which is primarily sociologists, who believe in this idea of assimilation and argue for that. A second school comes up uh, by students, primarily the children of immigrants in the United States from the Nordic countries, who study with a famous historian by the last name of uh, Turner, Jackson Turner. And the, the, the Turnerians, as they were called, begin to approach this idea of ethnicity or the ethnic. And so very quickly what we have is the immigrant become an ethnic character, right? So the Polish immigrants becomes a Pole a Polish-American, and the Norwegian immigrant becomes Norwegian-American. So they become part of this ethnic spread, if you will. So I would argue that the inherent constraint of ethnicity, which is a second major approach, as I said, as a frame of reference, does induce marginalization. Right? So when somebody becomes ethnic, you can put them out of the mainstream. They're exotic, and many of the papers that were uh, you know, presented today, brilliant papers, were talking exactly about that idea. That every now and then, the mainstream, whatever society it might be, needs an exotic, and you pull in a representative of that community just to show off every now and then, right? There's a, there's a safe place for them, but ultimately they have to go back to whatever they are. Anytime, so you cannot really become part of that mainstream, you are kept to the side. And that's, in many ways, the double-edged sword of ethnic studies. On one hand, it allows us to capture what was not captured before with the melting pot theory. But on the other hand, it isolates it from the mainstream story. It becomes a sideline issue. And so you recapture it, but it's put as a nice footnote to show, isn't it, how, isn't it cool how diverse we are? But it doesn't really speak to the main uh, story within the United States. Now, I don't mean to imply here that it's not a relevant category of self or for analysis, but rather we have allowed it a coherence that despite our best attempts to make contingent appears monolithic, ahistorical, and essentialized. So we speak about Arab Americans, right? We speak about, we use that term, but the reality is that, as I said at the beginning, that term wasn't even around until the 1930s. People didn't really use that term. But beyond that, many, for example, Lebanese Americans reject the notion that they're Arab. Completely. I was approached, I, I sit on the United States Census Bureau uh, Advisory Committee, and I was approached by uh, an organization 
primary, you know, the Lebanese organization, very nationalist, who basically wanted me to argue for Maronites as a separate category in the census, right? That they are a place of their own. And they were very convinced of this. So this, when I said to the person, you don't want to be counted amongst Arabs, it's like I just jolted them with 100,000 volts of electricity. You know, he just, no, right? There's no element to it. So we use the term Arab-American, and I we use it sometimes strategically because there are political reasons for it. But the reality is it's a very difficult term to explain, even for people themselves. And many, many of the, as the scholars who spoke today did a brilliant job of elucidating that problematic in Australia. So uh, it still appears monolithic and essentialized. Now certainly, I, and I have to say, there are many new young scholars in Arab-American studies today who have endeavored to problematize this category, especially in the past 10 years with works by cultural studies, anthropology, and sociology scholars. And this is a very hopeful beginning. However, I would like to argue that in order to avoid this marginalization, ethnic studies have to do several things. First of all, most studies are always about relationship with the mainstream society. We have not had anybody that looks to other ethnic groups. It's very rare. Sarah Gualtieri, who uh, works at the University of Southern California, is working on a project, uh, and I think next year she will hopefully finish it, in which she's looking at the relationship between Lebanese Syrians and the Hispanic community in LA. Right? In other words, that mapping of self of where we belong is not Arab American anymore. Now you're looking at other ethnic communities and their, your relationship to them. And in fact, that's a much more real thing. Most immigrants didn't see an American for a long time because most immigrants would arrive in the cities and the cities were populated by other immigrants. So, you know, Lebanese slash Syrians slash Arabs always complained about the Irish. They got into fights with them in, in, in New York, in Manhattan, and in Brooklyn. So if you read the newspapers, they're not talking about the Americans or the 100 percenters, as they called them. They really didn't care that much about them until they moved out of the cities, which was the next generation. The reality is that their world was made up of other, quote unquote, ethnics. The other problem is this respectability narrative is still with us. This idea, most studies about Arab Americans continue to be focused on the middle class. And most narratives by Arab Americans are the following. We came, we worked, we succeeded. When I was doing oral history interviews, that was always the case. Oh, so I, here they are arriving in the 1910s, in 1900, in 1920, 1930. Heck, in 1940, South Carolina, North Carolina, right? I mean, this is the heartland of the Jim Crow South. So I asked a question to them. So what was the racial relations like? Oh, it was okay. We just worked hard and they respected us. Now, of course, that narrative, they do that because it's a narrative of salvation. It's a narrative in which they are trying to avoid being sucked into that you know, whirlwind of race. They didn't understand it for one thing and they didn't want to deal with it. But the reality is it becomes a very problematic narrative. Because, and I'm sure many of you know, uh, in the port of Beirut, there is an embodiment of that narrative. It's a statue called the immigrant. And of course, as many of you know, Arabic is a gendered language. And the immigrant in this case is male. And of course, the immigrant is male. It's a guy, one guy, with the libede, you know, really kind of cool peasant hat, carrying his little thing and, you know, staring out at the sea. It was first put together by the Lebanese club uh, in Mexico City. I think there's one here, Brisbane, and there's one in the port of Beirut. 
those are the embodiment that migration is male and these migrants are individuals, which of course is rubbish on both accounts, but second, that they always succeed. So what we don't have in ethnic studies of Arab Americans, class. Nobody ever talks about class, which is why I was amused when I read of this one doctor who calls himself a Syrian socialist. And by the way, you wouldn't believe how many people attacked him for being a socialist. And he goes on, interestingly enough, to build the first community hospital that creates health care for the poor, in, for the farmers in Oklahoma. I mean, he actually becomes quite well known. And he runs on the socialist platform. But we don't understand the issue of class. Right? I mean, the, we think of this Arab-American community as if they're all one whole. But in fact, they were, you know, and this idea that they all peddled, or as they say here, hawked, you know, they were hawkers. That is absolute nonsense. Of course, it's the idea that that's what they did. But at least in the United States, and I can only speak based on the data that we have been collecting, we actually have found that no, most of them did not peddle. The majority actually worked in factories. They were working class, men and women but that their lives did not fit the narrative of the Arab American who comes, pedals, buys a store, and then becomes rich and happy and American. Right? We don't hear about them becoming engaged in union activities because when you work in factories in 1910, 1920, 1930 America, you are in the midst of strikes, labor strikes. And sometimes those labor strikes, by the way, are by Syrian workers against Syrian owners, which creates that tension. But if we don't understand the issue of class, we really are not understanding the society at all. Gender and sexuality, of course, are equally critical. Now, there have been many studies that have been coming out about the idea of gender, but this notion, for example, of homosexuality is completely not part of the story, completely. Because we don't do that kind of thing, quote unquote. But again, when you look at the evidence from the newspapers, from the reports, from the court cases, from the police cases, the reality is what you find very quickly is that's not true. The other thing, and I will uh, conclude shortly after this, is we don't have intimate histories, right? In many ways, immigration is not about going from Lebanon to the United States. Nobody ever, ever immigrated that way. People went from village to community. They didn't say, I'm going to America. They said, I'm going to Elk City, Oklahoma. Not really. They probably went somewhere else. New York is usually the one that said, but they, their world, their mapping is from community to community. There are real intimate issues. We don't know the impact on mental health of migration. We don't. We haven't studied it. Migration is incredibly hard, right? We were doing this uh, data collection, and for the first time, we mapped this data. Uh, and the map that I showed you earlier, actually, I just took out the rest. But basically, we mapped people uh, using the census of where they lived in the United States. And I was just playing around with the software. I have nothing better to do with my life. And then I decided that I could show the numbers of people per county. Now, counties are fairly large, especially when you get to the Midwest, like Oklahoma. And all of a sudden, ones popped up, right? One person in the census recorded in that county. And this, this wave of loneliness came over me. Now, by the way, they may not have been lonely. I, it might be projecting. Maybe they were really happy and they didn't want anything to do with other Arabs. Like, yeah, who? Right? I'm, I'm away from this. I don't want anything to do with them. But the reality is, migration is hard. You arrive in a place that all of a sudden demands that you to explain yourself in different ways that you never had to explain yourself. You know, why do you have to explain garlic, right? And olive oil and how you speak in a certain way and how you dress in a certain way, you become so self-conscious and you have, but not only that, 
Work becomes exhausting. It's a different type of work. It's socially isolating. You have no social cocoon. You're exposed to new diet, new temperatures, new diseases. And in fact, you yourself are seen as a carrier of disease. And so ultimately, there's a whole lot of things that are going on. So we found out, for example, using death certificates that we've been collecting, it sounds morbid, but they're actually quite amazing for social history, that uh, immigrants, Arab immigrants, died at twice the rate of, the, uh, of pulmonary diseases than the general American public, right? So the question, of course, is why and so on and so forth. But those are the things that they matter to them, not am I Syrian or am I not? Of course that's important. That becomes important when you want to naturalize or what have you. But the reality is we cannot go beyond the limitations of this ethnic until we understand with the intimacy, that moment of migration. And I have to say, uh, David's uh, presentation today, the, the theater, was so intimate because of that. It was so powerful. And those of you who work on literature like Jumana, who has done a brilliant book, by the way, uh, they, it brings us an intimacy that we don't have when we are sociological or large categories. So my point here is the marginalization is happening not only because, you know, Orientalism and the West and so on and so forth, although all those things are true, but I think one of the ways that we can actually begin to change the process is to begin to understand that we have to write the stories in a very different way. And that's, by the way, and now I do a plug for the center. That's what we're doing at the center. Thank you so much. some time for questions. I ask two things, that you wait for the microphone because we're recording and we need to hear your question, of course, for the recording, and that you ask questions that are, we prefer them to be to the point, if you don't mind. Thank you. So just over here. My question concerns um, ISIS, the attitude we have towards ISIS and whether it's over the top, and a recent, uh, not too recent phenomenon where uh, a young kid, I shouldn't say young kid, but a teenager, wherever he was, shot someone who's working in the police department and the impact that had and whether how we reacted to it. It seemed to be a little bit over the top. I just wonder what your, what your thoughts are on these sorts of things. Uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts about ISIS, uh, about Israel and about Palestine, but I don't think in many ways uh, either this is a forum for it or that, in, or that let me put it this way, just because somebody does something and they may be Arab across the country, I don't think it becomes the responsibility of those of us who are descendants or of, of that heritage to explain, justify, or uh, do anything of the sort. Thank you so much, Akram. This was wonderful. Alan Beek. Um, I just wanted to you to comment a little bit on um, the problem of ethnicity as a category and the con current debates, of course, about the census in the U.S. and the creation of the category of Arab American yeah. in there. Do you think, what are the pros, the cons? Will that resolve the issue that you're talking about? Probably not. But, uh, so for those of you who don't know what's going on in, the, in terms of the census, not that you should really, but the United States is the one country that I know of where every 10 years, by law, by constitution, we are required to count every single individual. It doesn't happen. 
but we are required to do so by the United States Constitution. Not me personally, I never do that. But in essence, you have to calculate these. And the problem is, the United States is facing two categories. One is race, and there are only five racial categories according to the Office of Management and Budget. And that is the powerhouse. And the only way you can change this is by act of Congress. So there are five racial categories, but the number of ethnicities have grown considerably, as you can imagine, right? So you have Afro-Caribbean. Where do you map that person? So the difficulty becomes, you have hundreds of ethnicities and five racial categories. How do you map them like that? Because of a series of law, uh, very much like what happened in South Africa and Australia, at one point, it became apparent to the Syrians, uh, in other words, Arabs, in the United States, that the new immigration law, the 1924 immigration law, was going to exclude them from naturalization. In other words, they could no longer become citizens because they belonged to a continent called Asia. Right? So the United States had been excluding Asians for a long time, beginning in the 1880s, the Japanese, uh, Chinese Exclusion Acts, of course, and then the Japanese, but then it moved on to other unwanted uh, you know, categories. So it becomes very apparent in the 1920s that a series of lawsuits are brought around, uh, brought uh, to the court by a group of uh, Syrians, and ultimately they win the category that they are white. And by the way, the argument that they presented is exactly the same argument that you see in South Africa at the Supreme Court, uh, and that to a certain extent Ghassan and Anne actually have also talked about in terms of Australia. And that is, as I said earlier, jokingly, but it's really true, that we have the right to be white because Christ was white and we're Christian, so there you go. Uh, what, what, is, what, what is interesting, it's a little more complicated than that, I'm being glib, but it's not too much more complicated than that. What is really interesting, by the way, is that the two lawyers who took the case were Jews. Because they were very worried that if the Syrians become considered as Asians, then the Jews would be excluded next. And they won the case in that regard. Uh, so beginning in the late 1920s, the Arabs became white. So in the United States Census, when they calculate, you know, when they are counting, it's always Arabs are counted as white. But the problem is, for the Arab-American community, is that when you are sort of absorbed in, assimilated in, right? This sounds like Star Trek and uh, the Borg. Uh, you will be assimilated. Uh, they, they have no longer any political voice. And not only don't they have any political voice, but as you may know, and I'm not sure if the system is the same here, the census is used to apportion the goodies, right? So grants, uh, uh, you know, political office, uh, research institutes, you name it. It's important. And for many Arab Americans, the, that was a problem because we weren't getting any real numbers. We weren't seeing the numbers. So just to give you a brief example, we don't know if diabetes is getting worse or better because we have no baseline of understanding that without splitting the Arab American population away from the white category. The census said no. For a long time, the census refused uh, to allow that because their argument was the OMB does not consider Arabs to be a race. You're white. So, but recently we have convinced we, a bunch of Arab American activists and myself because I sit on the committee, we have convinced them to allow us to use it as a category that is included not as race but as an ethnicity, as a separate category. So now you can count them. And 
They promised to test it. That's as far as we've gotten. So sorry for this big background, but you needed to understand what this is all about. So Saha's excellent question is, will this solve the problem? The answer is no. Because first of all, we didn't get Arab Americans. We got MENA, which is Middle East and North Africa. They refused to allow Arab Americans. So now we will count uh, Iranians, which is fine, and Turks, which is fine, which is Israelis are fine. But we don't have this. The, the problem is it, it's, it still amalgamates this group together. Uh, and we are the second problem, and this is, becomes very technical. Uh, we won't get any data really because they don't, because it's a, such a small population. They have to oversample, right? They have to go to a place and count more than the the, the white folks. But the problem with oversampling it costs a lot of money, lots and lots of money, and so they're not going to do that. So in essence, it's not really going to solve anything. And finally, which is a subtext, I mean, another part of your question, the arguments about who belongs in this MENA are still going on. For example, Iraqi Assyrians want nothing to do with it because Iraqi Assyrians are counted, and they're saying, halal <laughs> tizi. Right, I mean, actually, that's what somebody told me. I'm, I'm literally, I, I, this is exactly what one person told me, you know. And I said, okay, I'm not anywhere near it, but I will. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was a bit rude. But, all right, so, halal uh, means get off my ass. Sorry. You've been talking about the Middle East. It seems to me that that is an unwarranted um, London-centric term. Sure. Um, could you see any advantage in people talking about the Levant instead? It's a very good point you raise. And if you look at the maps, how people used to map the area near east, then, of course, it becomes the Middle East, uh, whether it's the United States State Department, Department of Defense, the CIA, the British Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs, what have you, the, uh, or the Home Office. You will see that they do map it differently. The reality is whatever you map, is going to be a problem. If you call it the Levant, I mean, the Levant, of course, appeals to an 18th century notion of who lived there and what they did. And there's a sense of romanticism about it. And in fact, there's an attempt to revive it. Uh, in Israel, there, there's a journal called the Journal of Levantine Studies. I think they're trying to revive this idea of sort of a cosmopolitan world that existed that transcends religious thing. Obviously, they have political reasons behind it. But uh, anything you draw, as go you create a map, is already going to have problems with it. So I don't think it is necessarily the term itself or the map or where it stops or where, where it goes. Uh, and in fact, I think I have a picture of those maps if I, look, I, I didn't bother, oh, there we go. So I mean, you can see how far and how big or small it gets what is considered the Middle East. Uh, the problem is when you actually take that map to mean something concrete. And that's my argument with the map. It's not the boundaries, it's that those boundaries are constantly in flux, as you can see from these two images. So I don't really see that it would be that beneficial if we run into the same problem where we assume there's something called Levantine and it's a coherent aspect of things. Okay, so you spoke of the idea of community, the migrants moving from communities to communities and not as individuals. And there's this habit of creating an alternative country or homeland within the, con the new country that Middle Easterns tend to you know, use, I don't know if it's more of a healthy adaptation mechanism, or maybe it's a way that it's, it's an obstacle to, you know, towards achieving that, um, uh, and I don't want to use the word integration, but 
um, getting used to the new context yeah, and the new course. society and so on. Sure. I wonder what you think on that. Like, no, no, it's an excellent it, point. Yeah. It's an excellent point. I mean, people have to invent homes. We're constantly constructing a place because when you leave a space, you have to reconstruct it to create that sense of support and familiarity uh, that gives you, in many ways, the strength to deal with the outside world that you're in now that sees you as an alien. So it's absolutely essential. And that's why, I mean, and again, I, I won't speak for Australia, but in the United States and in South America, Argentina, Brazil, and Colombia, and the Caribbean, and Chile, and what have you, one of the first things that you begin to see is the formation of these you know, civil society organizations, whether it is uh, family clubs. There's one family club in Minnesota, sorry, in the United States, that has been meeting since 1900, right? It's a huge family by now. Uh, and, or whether it is a, a religious group, you know, the mosque or the church, if you will, uh, whether it is a civic organization, whether it is whatever you, it, these have become very essential, absolutely, in creating a sense of self, if you will. But in many ways, the, the problem with them, of course, is that, uh, I shouldn't say it's the problem, but one of the, 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 the tension aspect of them is when you create these boundaries, right, uh, they begin to seem authentic. I mean, they appeal to this idea of authenticity. And as uh, Yasser, I think, uh, I don't know if he's here tonight, was talking about, authenticity is a very dangerous term, right? It's as dangerous, if you will, as when people look at you from the outside and call you an alien. To claim that there's some, so these organizations, when they become ossified, when they freeze frame the, the movement that has always been part of the life, really, that becomes problematic for those people who don't want to be, in essence, frozen in. So, but otherwise, you're absolutely right. They are incredibly helpful and, and necessary for immigrants. Hi there. Um, just a quick question regarding sort of uh, younger generations of Americans. Um, when it comes to the identification process, and obviously you're talking about census data and every 10 years that you have to basically um, describe yourself as who you are and what you are, are more and more younger generations of Americans who might have come from an Arab descent uh, feeling more inclined to identify themselves as Arab Americans? Or are they sort of steering away from it nowadays as a result of what's happened over the past 10, 15 years in regards to uh, Arab and uh, American conflict? Good question. Um, I don't, I'm not a sociologist, and I don't work in contemporary issues. I live in the past, and I find it a very nice place to be. Uh, so my answer is going to be anecdotal rather than exhaustive. Right? I'm happiest when I'm in an archive from the 18th century. Right? It's very quiet. The voices are not in my head. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, in many ways, 9-11... So there are two phases of Arab identity emerging in the United States. The first one was 1967. Right? So in 1967, the, the, of course, the Six-Day War, uh, I think more realistically it was a two-hour war, uh, and that was a shock. It was a serious shock. And in the Arab world, uh, it, I mean, even those who were not necessarily like Nasser or whatever, Gamal Abdel Nasser, they still were, everybody was in shock. Especially, and those Arab Americans, who were, those who were living in the, in the United States, remember that moment whether they are newcomers or descendants of people who came much earlier, because in the United States, ironically, there was a huge celebration of the Six-Day War uh, and a celebration of Israel and its accomplishment because it, it was a counter-narrative to the terrible situation in Vietnam, Americans losing there. So this was a victorious story. And so what you begin to see, this is when you see the rise of the Arab American University Graduate Organization, and Edward Said was one of the people involved in that, and many scholars were involved in that, and the Palestinian cause becomes a very powerful moment. And so in that sense, 
those who are second or third generation descendants begin to discover an Arab identity larger than what their Lebanese or Syrian parents have told them about. The second moment, of course, and then, you know, after 67, uh, in 1965, there's a change in immigration law in the United States that gets rid of the quota system that used to exist, and all of a sudden you see lots of Arabs arriving in the United States. Uh, and so that community builds up, and by the time you get to 9-11, that's the second moment that galvanizes the community around it. Uh, and it galvanizes them in a way that they, they want to reclaim, especially as you, you ask the young people, they w do want to reclaim an Arab-American identity in a positive sense. They're not retreating from it, right? I mean, it, it's, there are individuals who do retreat, of course. I have a friend who's Lebanese who started claiming he's Italian, right? He'll go, hey. I mean, he's really actually took on the, I'm like, what are you doing, you know? Uh, it's, but the majority didn't. The majority saw this, and, and in fact, it drove activism. Uh, both among uh, the Muslim American as well as the uh, Arab American youth. And so you see a lot more, uh, and probably the best way to embody it is there, there was a campaign called Yalla Vote, which is to get out the vote. And that becomes you know, very popular or what have you. Uh, but what is problematic about all of this is that the, the organizations that emerged in the 70s and 80s, like for example, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which is equivalent to the Anti-Defamation League in the United States, uh, is now losing steam. And many of the younger generation activists really want nothing to do with ADC. They see it as a behemoth that doesn't do anything for them. So the search, it seems to me anyway, is to find what kind of formal organization you do to coalesce together as a group. And that, it's not clear to me that that has emerged quite yet. Very good question, though. Okay. I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap it up. Sorry, we can't take all of your questions, but please join me in thanking Akram one more time for a very amazing talk. Thank you. Thank you.